Hello and welcome. My name is Liz Gleason, and you're listening to Shapes of Grief. Shapes of Grief is a curation of stories from ordinary people on their experience of loss, how their grief impacted them, and what helped them to find their feet again. Loss can really have such a profound effect on our lives, and it is my hope that Shapes of Grief will provide comfort, hope, and inspiration to our listeners, so that together we can get more comfortable talking about grief. If you like what you hear, please consider becoming a patron of Shapes of Grief on patreon.com. This is a listener-supported podcast, so please do donate, like, share and review. It really does keep us going. For more grief resources and grief support, find and follow us on all the usual social media channels and on shapesofgrief.com. So Deirdre Hearn, thank you very much for joining us today on Shapes of Grief. I really appreciate you coming. Mm. And today, this episode is going to look at pet loss, and in particularly your pet loss and what that has meant to you. So take us back a little, tell us a little bit about yourself, Deirdre, and how this little dog came into your life. This little dog, Charlie, was a one-year-old Bichon when he came into my life, or two years of age, actually. He was adopted at 12 months by my sister's family, who took Charlie in for a seventh birthday present for their daughter, who had another younger sister. So, busy household, not really had much experience of owning a dog in the past. They'd had dogs in their lives indirectly. So Charlie came into the family and through that early, through those early days, I was the second primary carer. So in fact, maybe a month after they got Charlie, they had had a holiday pre-booked. So they went away for three weeks. So very early on in Charlie's life within the family, I had him. So formed uh, quite a connection with him in those early days. So I always felt that maybe he was a little bit confused about where he belonged because it was so early in the family. So yeah, a year passed and uh, after a while it was clear that within that family they didn't have the time or the energy or the space to look after Charlie's needs around walks and care and looking after him. So my sister approached me and asked me if I would be interested in taking Charlie on. They didn't want to lose him out of the family. And they clearly saw I'm a total dog lover, but my lifestyle at the time, I was traveling a lot and in and out a lot and didn't allow it. So I said with a heart and a half, yes, I'd love to take Charlie on, on condition under the terms that if I was away, they'd step in and be there to look Mm. after him. So it was win-win all around. Mm. That's what 
started Charlie's It's quite a commitment taking on a dog. Very much so, yeah. yeah. But clearly I was ready to do that. I'd owned a previous dog or had inherited uh, my previous dog from my late mother, uh, an elderly toy poodle. So I had her for three or four years after my mother's death. So I had been two or three years without a dog at that stage. And I felt, yeah, time is right. So let's do it. And given that support, and there was another family member, a sibling close by too, so there were three of us involved, three Mm. separate households, and they were also willing to help out. So what sort of a household did you have at the time when Charlie arrived? Tell us a little bit about that. Well, very quiet household because I I was living alone. And um, so I had Charlie, the the plus for Charlie was that there was a one-on-one relationship here for him. His previous lifestyle before my my sisters was uh, gather again, a very busy family household, was out in the garden a lot, you know, home alone a lot. So this was a very different situation for Charlie, one-on-one with a very dedicated pet owner who his needs were primary, two, three walks a day, you know, not left home alone for too long. He was popped into the other households if it looked like. Uh, so he wasn't in that place of eight hours a day in a garden. He was. Uh, he had lots of companionship around him. So yeah, it was a very different environment to the one he was used to. I started taking his training seriously because he was quite an assertive little fella, you know, sassy and energetic and very playful, needed a lot of play. So I worked with that and and he became a lovely, lovely dog in that way. Well behaved, good. So it was easy to leave him in other households. Mm. People were happy to have him. He wasn't an aggressive dog. And how did his arrival change your life, Deirdre? I mean, it's quite Um, an impact, this sassy little small barky thing arriving in your doorstep. Yeah. And you're a mindfulness teacher. Yes. You meditate, you practice yoga. Yes. Your life is quiet. You know, you're a golfer. (laughs) (laughs) So here's this sassy little yappy dog arriving in. Yeah. How did that change the environment at home for you? It brought a lot of energy into the household. Mm. You know, he he was perfectly content to loll around on the couch, you know, and but when he was out and about, he loved to run. So um, his pre- we settled into a nice little companionable relationship mm. and um, he it brought me into what I'd forgotten about with my previous dog, finding another tribe in my locality, the doggy tribe. So out walking, you know, you meet your dog owners and you have the conversations and everybody, all dog owners are coming from the same place. Their hearts are open around their animals. So beautiful conversations and relationships build up. So that brought me out into this small town I live in and you get to know people and you get to know other dog owners. Mm. The dog gets to know each other. We have beautiful spaces around us where the dogs can be off the leash on the beach and play with each other. So Charlie's needs and my needs were being well met emotionally and mentally and physically. I was getting a lot more exercise, you know, finding another tribe around me and connecting with other dog owners. And he was happy out. He had a lot of socialization, Mm. which our dogs need, really. And did that surprise you? Like, had you experienced loneliness before his arrival? Or was it only when you started to connect with other people 
that you realise there was a richer world out there when you have a means to connect um, with your tribe, like you said? Yeah, well, I, I would always be very active socially. So I wouldn't have seen myself in that place of loneliness more than maybe alone, living alone because I'm, I'm actively out there engaging with the world and with people. This was just another uh, tribe that I hadn't engaged with at close quarters before and I felt it became an important tribe mm. because it gets, have, owning a dog gets you out to exercise anyway, you know, motion affects emotion so your physical and mental well-being is looked after and the sense of community, you know, the dog was socialised and I was socialising so it's win-win. And I'm wondering, did it give you a greater sense of belonging in your community then? Yeah, well, there were other tribes I belonged to, but this was yet another one that, uh, mm. you know, being social. And there's something about being social with pet owners because there's we share this understanding of what this relationship is all about and how much the animal means to us, you mm. know. So it's a large part of that. So what is this relationship all about? This relationship with your pets is all about unconditional acceptance and non-judgment and unconditional love. So their presence, they have an ability to be present to us in a way that we often can't find in our human interactions. So they delight in our company, the animals, the love that comes from them is uh, just unspeakable a lot of the time it just is it's not questioned it's it's there so i think every pet owner taps into that in a way that that's the bond we share so that's the love we share the love we if we have for our animals we love to speak about to other pet owners mm. and that's part of how these relationships with other dog people build do you think, Deirdre, that it's comparable to the love a parent has for a child? Pretty much, yeah. Mm. Dogs are, are family members, you know, in the same way as, it, you know, children to parents are and parents and children mm. are. So, yeah, it's that deeply unconditional acceptance mm. of the other. And, and like whilst we wouldn't say that a dog's life has the same value as a child's life, mm. Yet the love that's given to that dog is the same love. It comes from the same source as the love that we give to a child. It does. You know, our yeah. attachment mm. to that little animal mm. is similar to a little child. Very You know, even so. though we wouldn't equate the life of a dog with the, the life mm. of a child. Well, I wouldn't. Mm. Would you? No, but, but they're little beings. Yes. Yeah. You know, they are there are spirits. Yeah. They're they're little beings that have life. You know, I think my point is, way. no matter what the object of affection is, mm. it's the same love pouring out. It is. Yeah. yeah, like the child is a channel for a love to for a parent to express their love. The dog is a channel for the dog owner to express their love yeah. unconditionally. Particularly if you haven't children. Yes, indeed. Like yeah. Case, yeah. Yeah, very much so. Hi everyone, excuse this brief interruption. It's Liz here and I wanted to tell you about my grief training programme. 
If you are interested in becoming grief literate or grief trained, I've designed a comprehensive online program which you can do at your own pace in your own time. It's been designed primarily for healthcare providers, but we all have a right to grief training and education. So if you're interested, then it's for you too. Sign up today at shapesofgrief.com. Now, back to the podcast. So what happened, Deirdre? You mentioned that Charlie was with you for... Five years. For five years. Um, So in terms of why he left this planet so young, it was an accident. He was, as I said, a beautifully behaved dog in so many ways. But there was one block, and that was recall. Recall was, in terms of calling him back in response to his name, recall generally worked unless there was a loud train, car or motorbike in the area. He loved to chase. So Charlie could never be off a lead. He was always on the lead on the roads and the streets. But on the beach, long open beach, he was always off the lead. He was free. But close to the beach was a railway track, so okay, which was all fenced off, so there was no danger of him running to the railway track. But when the trains arrived, he would pick up on the noise from way back and start the chase and chase after the train. And then he was gone like a bullet. So that instinctual thing kicked in and I'm out of here. Nothing will stop me. I need to chase this. So this day we were on the beach and the train arrived and off he went, darting after it. And generally when the train went out of sight, he'd turn back and come back to me. But this day he disappeared under a connecting tunnel uh, where the train was above him and the tunnel let us through to the road outside. So he disappeared under the tunnel and um, out to the road. I chased and I got there in time to see him uh, on a very busy road running in and out of the cars and chasing very close to the wheels of one of them. He was hit by the car and um, thrown uh, quite a distance. And um, the driver obviously didn't know he'd hit this little creature and drove off. So on the side of the road, much closer to the scene, was this young man who was screaming and roaring at the driver of the car. And how can you do this, etc. And as I got there in total shock, um, mm. he, he screamed at me to lift Charlie, get him up, carry him to my car, to his car, and I'll drive you straight to the vets. And what do you remember, Deirdre, what was going on in your mind, and your body as this was happening? Um, I, I just went into shock. I was frozen to the spot and I heard his voice as if in a great distance saying, go get him, lift him, take him, carry him. My car is here. Let's go to the vet mm. immediately. So I did that and Charlie was clearly seriously injured and a mess. I sat into the back of his jeep and this young man drove me to the vets. And did you know this man? No, No. total random stranger who turned out to be a total angel. In the car on the way to the vets, a 10 minute ride, he was totally, deeply upset and traumatised himself, Mm -hmm. crying profusely. How can this car driver do this? How can this happen? How can he drive? What a terrible thing to happen. Mm. He was deeply upset. So he was expressing 
all the stuff that was deep down in me, but I was frozen in shock. Yeah. The, the, the release of all that emotion, how can this happen? How can this be? And um, so we got to and This the is a man who didn't know you or Charlie. No. But he Deeply was distressed by what he witnessed. Indeed, yeah. And yet able to jump into that saviour role immediately yeah. and gather yeah. you up, tell you what to do, bring mm. you there. So we got to the vets and um, they immediately took Charlie, took charge. We'll take him now. You need to go home and we'll deal with this. I said, fine. They and asked you to go home? Yeah, it was, mm. he needed surgery he needed a lot of attention yeah. there's nothing I could do what could I do sitting in mm -hmm. in, in, in the, uh, it felt like the right course of action for me yeah. yeah I'm handing Charlie over and they're going to take care of him and I'm on the phone so this young man took took me back to my own car and on the way he shared that he was a dog owner himself he had two dogs at home and he had just become a father the previous week for the first time. So wow. he was very open, yeah. vulnerable and in his heart. Mm. And we exchanged phone numbers and he said, please let me know what happens. Do you remember his name? I do, now that you ask me, yeah. Because we didn't converse thereafter, we messaged. Mm. So I went home and the vet called me an hour later and gave me the rundown and said Charlie was all stitched up and in surgery. Uh, his tail was clearly uh, wounded, but they were very uh, unsure about the head injuries and stuff like that. Mm. And that what they were going to do, uh, the vet was going to take him home to his own house and take care of him through the night. Wow. So another so, angel stepping into this situation. Yeah, into his own home. And is that, nor was that be normal practice? Um, I think it could be in extreme cases, intensive care, yeah. you know, it, it was an intensive care provision really, because they didn't have that in, yeah. in the surgery. It's incredible really. Oh, it was, yeah. Yeah. And it was very reassuring for me to know that Charlie was in that place. I mean, he was deeply uh, sedated, obviously. Mm. So I just didn't know, I was trying to tune in, sense through the night, is he going to be okay, isn't he going to be okay, and there was nothing really clear coming from mm. this. So Were you still in shock, Deirdre, at this yeah. point? Oh, very much so. Yeah. And um, How do you know, how did, how did that manifest in your system, that shock? Everything felt really unreal. It was almost like an out-of-body experience. Yeah. Like the world, everything around me was unreal. I was dosing myself with rescue remedy and yeah, it's almost like I, I was removed from the experience and yet I was in it. And um, it was me telling myself everything is going to be okay. You know, that was my way of coping. It's going to be okay. It's going yeah. to be okay. So eight o'clock the next morning, the phone rings and it's the vet. And he said, the news isn't good. He said, um, Charlie was out unconscious for the, for the night and he came to just a half an hour previously as if he wanted to go out to pee. So the vet let him out into the garden and he came back and he just collapsed on the floor and died. Oh. So, um, 
that's what happened. Yeah. <sighs> so. Um, so he'd managed to get his little body up. Yeah. Out for one last pee. Yeah. And then that was it. Collapsed. Yeah. So something so happened internally with the movement. Yeah, well, yeah. I think he, he, it was clear at the scene that he was seriously, seriously injured. It, yeah. I heard the bang of the car. It was yeah. a ferocious bang. So, like the previous night, the vet had said, we won't know the extent of the injuries, really. We won't know what the brain injury or the head injury could be. Mm. You know, we don't know, won't know down the road if he recovers what the impact of these injuries will be on his quality of life. So all this was said to me the night before. So in a way, having that information, when he broke the news to me, I felt it feels this is the way it should be, you know, yeah. because um, there was no guarantee of how his life would be mm. and whether he would recover. And, and he, it, the recovery would have been very slow because the injuries were major. It was in inevitable, in a way, it, yeah. given what had happened. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So what was the impact, Deirdre? I mean, you've described to us this beautiful attachment and friendship and love mm. that you had with Charlie. How did this sudden death impact you? Do you remember? Um, I remember very clearly, yeah. I do remember and, you know, I'd had, I'd had bereavements. Both my parents had passed at that stage and close friends and family members. So, you know, I'd experienced and I'd had the decision with my previous dog, my mum's dog, to put her to sleep. So she was 16 and a half years of age, so it was her time. So. She was put to sleep in my arms, you know, and the beauty of that was how quick and gentle and dignified it was. So I'd had that experience and I'd experienced that um, grief of the loss of a pet before. So this was a different set of circumstances. I wasn't there. I had the trauma. I had the post-peak post-traumatic stress and the flashbacks that were coming at me, the memory of what happened, the impact of what happened. But the sense of loss was pretty similar. I'd describe it as uh, being thrown into the existential loneliness of the human condition, the void that's there. When you lose something you love so unconditionally. And it throws up all the questions about what is life? What is this mm. void I find myself in? And did that happen straight away? Or was that a little bit down the road of your, your grief? No, it kind of, you know, I was, I was in and out for those few days of this unreal state, this yeah. out-of-bodiness, I would describe as, of just being nothing around me is real, it doesn't feel real and the void of oh, this source of love in my life is there no more and the thing that I had to do and I've heard other pet owners um, can't do what I did 
when I got the news of Charlie's death that morning, I straight away went to his bed, his toys, all his belongings, and put them away, out of sight. Right. The pain of seeing them, and the empty bed, and him not coming back into that, was too much. I had to remove the food bowls, everything, out into the shed in the garden. I've heard other pet owners say, they're still there five years later, you know. So that was something I needed to do out of the way, which mm. was like me almost sweeping this out of the way mm. for now. Can't handle it, can't deal with it. Mm. Um, well, you couldn't. You were still in shock very much, it sounds like. Yeah. yeah. I did the same with Fifi, my, my previous dog. Mm. On, on, uh, I had to remove all the, her, her stuff out of sight couldn't deal with the empty bed or anything like that. So looking back, Deirdre, on those first few days after Charlie's death, what strikes you most about, you know, the first three to five days? Okay, what I was dealing with was um, how to manage the flashbacks, him in my arms in, in the car on the way to the vet, mm. really seriously injured. So I was managing that with rescue remedy and tapping, emotional freedom technique, okay. which is very good yeah. for, for trauma and for undoing, helping to lighten the load of the flashbacks. I sought out the company of pet owners. That's all I wanted. Okay, so someone who got exactly what you were going through. People who'd walked those miles and those moccasins. And it was like, I couldn't, I, I didn't even spread the news. I just, among my pet owner tribe, um, that's all. So uh, I was dealing with that um, for those first few days. And if I reflect on them, it was an unreal time. I was, mm. yeah, I was out of my body, really. Numb, you know, my physical body was like this, rigid, constrained, holding in the shock of what I witnessed, I suppose. Rigid with grief, I suppose. Really tight with grief. You know, I can't handle anything other than to really let process this out through my system. So you were fully consumed with it? Yeah, very yeah. much so. Yeah. And it's interesting to hear this because I think mm. for people who have never had that bond with an animal, be it a dog, a cat, a horse or other, they really don't understand. People really don't understand the depth of the connection mm. and therefore the depth of the loss, mm. you know, mm. or even people who are pet owners and something happens unexpectedly can really be surprised at the impact that this little creature can have on their lives. Mm. Very much so. Were yeah. you surprised at the depth of your grief? Yeah, having experienced it before, you know, you move away and it becomes a memory. Being thrown into it again, you reconnect with that void. You really do. You reconnect with that void. And what I was really sensitive to at the time, and I remembered, and I think it, it, it always happens to me at times of bereavement or other situation challenges. I remembered in the people I connected with what worked for me in terms of the support they were offering. I remembered tuning into that and saying, I need to really remember this when I'm in the opposite role. 
Okay. What works? So when you're what, in the supporting role? Yeah, yeah. What works? Tell us what worked for you. What works is, uh, well, what worked for me was the listening space, mm. was the, the presence, somebody who was present to my process, who offered me the space to really share what I was going through. Offering nothing, not wanting to fix, the classic what we need most in, in, in being witnessed at a most important, painful, challenging time of our lives is that presence, the gift of that active listening and just tell me what, what this is like for you. Yeah. And um, So you said without trying to fix, yeah. without trying to make better, yeah. just allowing what is be there. Indeed, mm. yeah. And um, you know, the, just the beautiful poems and just the sense of the people around who understood what a big deal this was. You said beautiful poems, what do you mean? You know, like the Rainbow Bridge is is a poem. It's a classic poem um, about people losing pets, where the where the animal has crossed the Rainbow Ridge into doggy heaven and will always be there to meet you or connect and with you. And did someone give you that poem? Yes. Yeah. yeah. Those little gestures. Another yeah. thing, I, I so almost va- you know someone validating, validating your loss yeah. by offering you. Yeah. This poem of understanding or another thing I found myself doing is I went online yeah. to to read the stories or connect with the forums around pet loss. Right. And I found that really helpful, you know, where people were describing their own loss and their own grief and what these animals meant to them. I got great comfort from that. So would you have heard a similar conversation to what we're having now? online when you went looking? Um, no, I'd have seen them in forums, okay. not auditory, you okay. know, so at that time, what, five years ago, now there'll be a greater presence yeah. of this format. And I think um, people do, like that's our go-to place now is, you know, God, Google, yeah, and we look for answers there. Yes. And I suppose essentially that's what we're doing here today together, yeah. is sharing this experience and all the facets of it so that somebody else listening can find, I suppose, hope and inspiration mm. and just validation if you, somebody's listening in and they're in that place of shock or disbelief that they can listen to your experience, Deirdre, and know, oh gosh, she went through it too, this is normal, yeah. this will pass, I'll be okay. Yeah. I mean, that's what we're trying to do here. So. Yeah. Yeah, and that mantra, just as you mentioned there, this too will pass. Just Mm. this too will pass. Embrace what's happened. And then I started to realise, I was tuning into Charlie, and I got so much. I mean, I didn't go down the road of... um, you know, uh, why was he off the lead at that particular moment when the train came? Okay, so you in didn't start way, looking for meaning and why it had happened. No, but uh, no, but these answers started to come because, in a way, when it did happen and he passed, there was an inner knowing that said there was an, ev- an inevitability about it. The way he chased and the way he played, there were a couple of dodgy experiences where he might have run out the front door and a car passed down the driveway and he he was off. There was a sense of, 
God, there was an inevitability about that. He might meet his end this way. Right. And then some weeks after, not even too long after he died, was a sense that I understood that Charlie was felt constrained by this physical body. He wanted to run. He wanted to chase trains and cars. And there was, a, there was something in him that said, don't like this constraint. I think I need to check out of here, you know. Hmm. So on a spiritual level, there was that. That helped me enormously to come to terms with um, how it happened. And I realized, yeah, there's a bigger picture here and I can't lose sight of this. There's something else going on here. So essentially it was your spirituality that helped you to find meaning in his early death. Oh, completely. And find acceptance. Completely. I'm saying the word acceptance. Do you feel that you came to accept his death? Oh, clearly. It started to make sense from that perspective. Yeah. And um, I I think of, of others who may not have a spiritual perspective the immense loss that grief is if you can't make sense of it in a in a broader sense if you know you can't see beyond this physical form that must be untold suffering really so i give thanks for that perspective you know so it was your ability to step into your physical body or your spiritual body mm. um that really helped you embrace this experience yeah yeah, definitely. Before we continue there, mm. I'd love to go back to Deirdre to the time when you were in the immediate aftermath of Charlie's passing mm. and what helped you? Okay. You know, what so else are you, you mentioned the Rainbow Bridge poem, yeah. you mentioned Rescue Remedy, yeah. and you mentioned going, looking online for people who were having similar experiences. Yes. You also said that when Charlie first died, it was your dog owner friends that you wanted to be with. Yes. And only them. So that yeah. um, that um, ability to relate exactly to your type of loss was really important. Mm-hmm. Indeed. What else, dear John? Um What else was um, my decisions to choose the people I hung out with over those few rec- few weeks thereafter mm. to to who understood. It wasn't that I needed to process it a lot, but just empathy is about just knowing where you're at without even needing words you mm-hmm. know so that accepting presence of acknowledgement this is a big deal for you Deirdre you know this is a big loss and I really see that and feel that and I know that so being very conscious around all of that you know gratitude I spent a long time writing about Charlie's gift in my life the gratitude for those five short years, the joy he brought, mm. um, how he connected us as a family, you know, the gift he was to the whole extended family, and how his loss brought us all together again in a different well, how way. How did you know to tap into gratitude? <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's, because it's, it's, it's scientifically proven, right? They yeah. say that the happiest people are those of us who can feel grateful Mm. for what we do have and focus on what is and real in our lives rather than the voids and what we don't have. Mm. How did you know at that moment of existential crisis, Mm. I'm going to tap into gratitude? Mm. 
Was that something you had practiced before very or something so. that was suggested to you? No, no, very much, very much part of my life, okay. you know. And I fell into appreciation young in my life. I suppose I would call myself a, a positive outlook type, you know, so gratitude came easy. But this was a, a deeper form of gratitude, I think, deeper acknowledging Charlie's presence, the way he chose to go, because there's a very happy ending to this story, um, his way to go, making sense of his way of going, gratitude for all the kindness and goodness of people that I experienced through those dark days, the kindness of people, the sensitivity of people, just coming forwards and being there. and. Yeah, like gratitude is the bridge to moving from what's missing into appreciating what's there that you may not be seeing because you're so deep in that void of suffering or what's missing. Mm. So it brings balance to the process. It certainly brought balance to my process. But it didn't happen immediately because I was yeah. steeped in the other technique, the, the other ways of the, the people, the empathy, the online presence, the reading the stuff, the going with the feelings, mm. those huge big feelings of this is the way it is now. I'm not denying the enormity of this loss. Mm. I'm not trying to get busy. I was just sitting with it. So you let those waves of grief just rock through you and you didn't try to avoid that? There's a very thin line in terms of being with the feelings or basking in the feelings. Yeah. So accepting the presence of these huge emotions of loss and being bereft and then accepting them, embracing them and then getting a bit busy, getting preoccupied before you fall into the void of overwhelm and not being able to climb out of those enormous feelings mm. of loss. So trying to get that balance right in those days and weeks, I play golf. Having things in your life where you can get completely away from what's going on mm. in your life. For me, golf gives me that. And I can, I can lose myself on the golf course and be totally present and find joy even in the midst of that loss, for those couple of hours that I'm out there. Then I come back to the loss and I say, oh, there it is again. Oh, I'll sit with it for a while and just feel mm. the feelings and not seek to run away from them. And then move again, slow, small steps into mm. another place of a little bit of a distraction and oh, come back to it again. So it sounds like the key to your success if you like through when I say success, but your ability to, to tolerate and manage your grief was just finding this balance, finding this dance between allowing the grief to come through you, acknowledging it, feeling it, but also stopping before it consumed you. Um, and I know in bereavement therapy, we call that something called the dual process model, which if you can imagine a weighing scales, they say that a good grief, a good healing, um, it's a good balance between allowing yourself to grieve, allowing yourself to mourn, feeling all of those feelings, but then also swinging to the other side mm. and allowing yourself to be distracted, to get on with your life, 
to do some restorative activities such as golf or meeting friends mm. and that the key to navigating the grief is not to dwell too much in one side or the other so you know not to ignore your grief and try and escape it but neither to allow yourself be fully consumed by it you know and they say in the early days that this oscillation from one side to the other it kind of hijacks us and we're being you know we're being moved from one side to the other but in time we learn to master that pendulum we learn to master that oscillation and to choose I'm going to allow myself to grieve now because a sense that there's a need in my body to let the grief come through mm. and then at other times to choose while I'm in Tesco I'm at the checkout this is really not convenient so I'm just going to press a pause button right now and let myself get on with getting my groceries speaking to my neighbor whatever needs to be done but knowing that I'll come back to it later mm. so you're becoming the master mm. of that mm. that oscillation process mm. if you like very well said and it sounds like you really did that just intuitively mm. I call it self-management it's awareness you mm. know and and I like the combination of my spiritual life and understanding my meditation practice and I often say this to in my in my groups you know like we're building if you if you commit to that kind of level of self-care and self-awareness you've got a toolbox it's a survival kit yeah so I knew I know when the going gets really rough I have that toolkit and it sounds quite clinical but it's of immense value mm -hmm. in terms of understanding the process, in terms of understanding what you need to do to look after yourself in that process, to just keep your head a little bit above water rather than tumble into deep distress and despair, which gets harder and harder to climb out of yeah. if you don't know how to oscillate between the two. Yeah. That's the key yeah. for me, and that's the big learning, has always been the big learning in these, at these times of challenge. If I can manage myself, my emotions, my thoughts and my thinking, mm. and just have room for that self-compassion, for acknowledging the feelings, for finding the means to take a step back for a little while and get distracted and revisit them again. The grief has an amazing homeopathic kind of sense to it. Grief drip, the, the full realisation when we lose somebody cannot hit us full belt yeah. immediately. We're drip fed the realisation. It's like the little drip fed. We can't take on that realisation in one fell swoop. So that's what I learned most about grief. Suddenly you're, you're in on, on the Tesco queue and all of a sudden <gasps> It hits you. Yeah. And there's another, oh, there it is again. Yeah. And it goes, and it comes and goes. So I, I, I see grief, uh, grief in that way. It's drip feeding it's into like the our psyche, realization. The psyche's way of making this grief real and helping us to accept that grief because for you, as you mentioned in the early days, it was too much. Mm -hmm. You went into shock. Mm -hmm. You know, you weren't able to take any more information in or anything that was not related to your immediate experience mm -hmm. had no place in your life in those days. Yes. You know, but over time, did you ever think you saw Charlie out? I know um, many bereaved people would say, I thought I saw her or I went to phone her 
And it's like the psyche's way of reminding you almost like a hundred times a day, no, they're gone, yeah. no, they're gone. Mm. No, oh, they're gone. very much so. And I, I found it hard to be like a friend of mine, a gorgeous, close friend of mine, offered me her dog in the days following Charlie's loss. You know, you can take, take her any time. I said, no, I'm not ready for that. You know, I can't in, engage. And I knew this dog well, you know, so that was an interesting experience. You know, it was a beautiful gesture. And yet I, I, I wasn't able to do that, which was curious, yeah. you know, yeah. to find the companionship of another dog. I needed to process Charlie's loss and the void his passing left just needed to be with that. Then mm. I was ready, obviously, down the road to re-engage with that. Um, but interesting, over... I had him cremated, I had his ashes, and it was a personal cremation. We got the choice of a group cremation or a personal cremation. I choose to um, hold his ashes, so I had to... And I was fluctuating then after that, making that decision, because it was the day after he died, you know, how... Oh yeah, another important piece. I had to go and say goodbye to Charlie the following day. So I asked that, the vet asked me, would you like to do that? Would you like to see him before the cremation? And I said, yes, I, I clearly would, you know. And that was sacred because I wasn't, mm. you know, I was there for the accident, but I didn't see his passing. So I went with a, a couple of fam family members and we sat in the room and they brought Charlie in, all wrapped up. He looked totally fine, all wrapped up in a beautiful towel. And what touched me deeply was the respect and reverence that the, the vet and staff had for this very important piece. I sat with Charlie and we all sat there. And then after a while, I asked the others to leave and I had my own time with them. They waited outside to mm. say goodbye and to give thanks and to really, to really express my thanks for his presence in my, in my, mm. in my life. And that even at that moment, you were able to find gratitude. Yeah. Oh, mm. oh that was the overwhelming sense. It's extraordinary of, of you. Thank you. And, um, that, oh, it was so important to do that. Mm. And that's when I felt his spirit. You know, we were in mm. this together. This mm. was um, this was a soul contract. The means of his passing um, was a soul contract, you know, mm. and... Um, what do you mean by that, Deirdre? Well, we, we just had this agreement to hang out together in this physical plane for a while. To, to connect and meet up and have an experience of playing in this field together. It was mm. clearly just the way he came into my life and how he became my dog through a second door, mm. you know, within the family. So I felt the sacred the sacredness of that farewell and the gift of being able to do that, you know, and that the vets would offer that. I saw that mm. as so important for my process. And yeah. I still bow down to their empathy, their, what they offered me in that 
whole experience, the respect they had for mm. the enormity of what, what had happened to me in my life. But they're doing this all the time. So that's a beautiful offering. Their empathy is enormous. Uh, part they play an enormous part in pet loss. Absolutely, because you know. had it been handled, you're this precious little soul um, of yours, had it been handled differently, could well have exasperated the whole experience for you. Mm. And it mm. sounds like um, everywhere you went, people were easing your grief mm. rather than exacerbating it. And then about mm. a month later, the same experience in the uh, clinic of going back to pick up Charlie's ashes and oh, in fear and trepidation, like, why did I do this? Mm. You know, this reminder, his presence, I, I, I'm trying to let him so go. It came and back up again a month later. All the way back. Yeah. And I had this beautiful conversation with Mark, one of the um, veterinary nurses there, a gorgeous experience of empathy again. He was so with me in my loss and mm -hmm. let me talk and share. Of course, they'd got to know Charlie down the years of, you know, and know who he, they really get to know your animal, you know, so yeah. they can. It's a personal loss for them as well. And that was another glimpse of the importance of empathy, presence and being accepting of the enormity of this event in somebody's life. Yeah. Mm. So, Deirdre, you mentioned a little while ago this has a, a happy ending. Oh, yes. You said this story has a happy ending. How, how long do you think you experienced that deep grief for and, you know, what helped you to come out of it or to, to expand with it, I should say. We know mm. that we don't come out of grief or get over it but something happens that helps us to accommodate it and assimilate it what helped you well one thing i felt was that i can't live without a dog even in the midst of that loss no dog owners will often say well there was only charlie you know and i can't even think of taking another dog it's all about charlie but there was a sense when when i got a sense of where he was now no physical body, you know, flying around chasing whatever he wanted to chase in freedom and in light and in joy. There was a sense that I know I, I want another dog and the time will be right. So I'll just stay with this process and I know, I have his ashes there, that when I'm ready to let go, let Charlie go, another dog will enter my life. So we'll just have, um, you know, some people say, let's travel for a few years and do without a dog. Yeah. But I had a sense straight away that it won't be long. You know, I, feel, I, I need a dog in my life for all that unconditional love, companionship and joy. It was the absence joy. of Charlie that made you realise there's a huge void here that is well filled Indeed. when there's a pet in the house. Yeah. yeah. So I sat with that and got on with my process. And after six months, I felt, I'm ready now. I'm ready to, to let him go. And so I had a little ritual on uh, another beach that he used to run on, where there were no trains close by. And I said, I'm ready now. It was a Sunday morning. Took his um, ashes down to the beach and said, this is where I let him go. 
So did another ritual of giving thanks and uh, with family members and, you know, I'm now letting Charlie go and let his ashes beautifully dripped into the beach and the ocean. And that was a Sunday, so I'm ready. Next day, Monday, I'm walking along the beach he lost his life on and I encounter this woman with two gorgeous little dogs. I said, hmm, they're lovely little dogs. What breed are they? Maltese Shih Tzus. Oh, I haven't heard of that breed. Okay, lovely temperament, great, lovely. They were the dotiest little dogs. Next day, Tuesday, I'm walking past the vets where all the trauma with Charlie arose. And this woman comes out with a little puppy in her arm. And I said, ooh, what a cute puppy, 12 weeks old. What breed is that puppy? Maltese Shih Tzu. Oh, this is the second Maltese Shih Tzu I've met in two days. Third day, Wednesday, I'm walking the beach with another doggy friend of mine with her dog. At the end of the walk, she says, there's a new groomers in town here. I'm taking my dog up there for a haircut. You might need it down the road. Do you want to come up and have a look? I said, fine, I'm all, I'm, I'm, I'm up for it. Go out, walk into the groomers and the groomer is grooming a Bichon Frise, Charlie's breed. I said, oh, I said, just lost my own Bichon Frise. Uh, I said to the groomer, I said, I think I'm ready for another dog. She takes her phone out and shows me a picture of this dog that this woman came in yesterday from a foster home and said, we're looking for a, a new home for this dog. I said, what breed is it? A Maltese Shih Tzu. Gosh. <laughs> I said, I rest my case. If That's ever my dog. the phrase, it was meant to be. <laughs> meant to be. Where yeah. is this Maltese Shih Tzu up the road in, in, being fostered in, in uh, kennels? Wow. Yeah. So I went up and there was Lottie, Maltese Shih Tzu, one year old, among about 40 other dogs. And no big explosions of, that's my dog. I sat on the couch at one stage with the, with the foster mother and Lottie just came and sat beside me and, you know, didn't connect. Just there was an overriding feeling of, this is my dog, but there's no bombs, blasts or bullets over it. It's, it was sparkly. It was a knowing. It was just a matter of fact, this is it. This, this is, is it. So I went home that night and I said, OK, I've seen her in one. And I said, I think this is my dog. There's 40 other dogs there. I need to take her for a walk. So I rang, ran up the next day and took, for, took her for a walk on her own. I said, this is it. This is my dog, Lottie. Mm. a year old Maltese Shih Tzu and to say oh what happened in the following weeks I adopted her there was some issues she had been with a, another dog and they wanted me to adopt both, both dogs I felt with my lifestyle and doggy care and all of that I couldn't they were two very young dogs I'd never separate dogs but I felt that Lottie would be able for this so there was some initial upset of separation anxiety that I worked very consciously with um, to build her trust again because she'd had three environments in her first year. So mm. uh, she, there was a lot of upset there. So I worked very diligently with her, with her for, for a good year mm. in building up that trust. And 
What I have manifested in Lottie is unbelievable. She is such a gorgeous little being. And then when I recognised Charlie's part in this, Charlie's part in this was to make way for this beautiful little being mm. who is the first dog I've chosen for myself. The other two were inherited through family. Yeah. Which I find extraordinary. Yeah. And this is the dog that matches my temperament. And we are just soul sisters. Oh. And she and I are involved in dog therapy. So there was a little uh, working relationship we took on in terms of I take her in to visit the elders in the nursing home. Mm-hmm. And her presence uh, is, is just beautiful in that environment. And she's a very different dog to Charlie, you know, and I... I, I can see the love on your face <laughs> radiating out. Well, I'm very biased. Yeah, yeah. But I, I, I'm, I'm so grateful to Charlie. Yeah. For making... What I, what I made... For making this gesture. He said, I'm going to make way for something beautiful. Wow. Even more beautiful yeah. in Deirdre's life. And so dear if someone is listening to this story mm. and their pet is about to die or has just died or they're, you know, a few months on the road, what would you say to them? What words of wisdom could you say to them about the whole experience of pet loss? Um, that it's painful the biggest blessing for me in the whole of it was it brought me so much into my heart so much more into my heart my heart was blown wide open through this loss the grief brought you in yeah Yeah. and it brought me into appreciating what empathy is and that the blessing of these little beings in our lives is enormous And when Mm. it's their time to go, it's about giving thanks for the gift that they bring uh, in that Mm. little package of like they're here to open our hearts and enrich our lives. And that in the midst of the loss, knowing this too will pass, it will pass. Mm. But it's important to take the steps to nurture, have patience with the process, to find the ways that you can be with your grief or share your grief. Communication and connection is so important in grief. Go out there. Don't sit in the isolation of your loss. Go find connection, whether that's with another animal or a human being Where do I find connection? I need witnessing of this process. I need somebody to witness this. So being active. Very much so. Yeah. Actively seeking connection Mm. because we do tend to withdraw or isolate when we're vulnerable. Yeah. And actually the thing that can help us the most is to connect Mm. and be witnessed in our pain. Mm. And then I'm also hearing gratitude and appreciation Mm. is what really helped you. And we can, you know, Mm. uh, except for listeners that that might be 
a hard place to get to right now if they're suffering, but it's something just to keep at the back of your mind or sitting on your shoulder, mm. that sometimes that can help tip the balance of the scales, you know. Very much yeah. so. Yeah, and this too will pass. And bigger picture, you know, for those with a spiritual dimension to their lives. But for those who may not have access to that, it's about finding the people around you who who care about you, you know, who will help you through this. Yeah. Very important. Yeah, yeah. Mm. Finding the ones who understand. Mm. Seek help. Okay. Mm. Well, Deirdre, thank you so much, so much for telling your story. And for me, this has been just beautiful mm. to be able to go through that process and share it, you know. And share yeah. the joy that Charlie brought into my life and really acknowledge him mm. for his presence and his yeah. life and his being. I know there's people listening who will really identify with the love and the connection and intimacy that you shared with Charlie. Mm. And I hope that, you know, somebody listening will grab some word out of this and it'll help them somewhere along the way through their journey. I hope so, so thank you mm, thank and in heart you. really appreciate it to everybody out there listening if you would like some more information on the subject of pet loss and find some resources to help you please do go to shapesofgrief.com thanks Deirdre thanks Liz thank you so much for listening to this episode of Shapes of Grief this podcast is not a substitute for professional medical or psychological advice. If your grief is making you unwell, please do go to your healthcare provider. Grief is a normal part of being human. You are not alone. Join the Shapes of Grief community in our private Facebook group and find more support and useful links on shapesofgrief.com. Until the next time, from me, Liz Gleason, stay well.